0: To the Overcoming adversity podcast, where it's all about a transformational growth and having a resilient mindset. I'm your host, Michael Allison. Before we get started, make sure you like and subscribe to the channel. Today's guest is an author, a writer, a music artist, and an educator. He does a lot of writing on stammering, culture, and justice reform. He has faced his own fair share of adversities. His parents divorced at the age of nine, he lived in some hostile environment in South Wales, UK. He had a stammering since the age of five, married at the age of 18, and divorced at the age of 22. His father died when he was 22. He started drinking too much, had a nervous breakdown, and lost his driver's license twice. He had opened up a music and art venue at the age of 40 at the height of the Me Too movement. He faced some allegations, he pled not guilty, then he went to prison for four and a half years. He's here to talk about it and tell you his story. Let's welcome to the show my good friend, Mr. Sean Parker.
1: Hi, Mike. Thank you very much for that intro. Nice to be here.
0: Sean, it's a pleasure to have you here, man, to come on this uh, platform, share your story to help um, inspire our audience, empower them and leave an impact. Um, that's what the Adversity Academy is about. And after seeing all of the adversities that you've been through to changing your life and be so much of a success success story, man. I knew that having you on is going to be an absolute pleasure. So welcome to the show, man. Thank you, bro. Let's hop into it, man. Lovely. Good. So, so if you can, um, can you tell me about uh, your experience growing up in South Wales? And what was that like uh, for you with your parents and some of your upbringing um, that you had kind of like struggled with while I was coming up? Sure.
1: Um- I wasn't actually born in in to South Wales. Yeah. I was born in the in the southwest of England, mm-hmm. um, so I'm English. And um, the thing about South Wales is that it's a different part of England. You know, it's um it's a different language and the the mentality is very different there. Um, so after my parents divorced in 1984, we moved up there. Our dad took us there as like an act of um, sort of coercive control, as we'd say now, against my mum. So um, she took the boys away 200 miles. Um, So there in South Wales, just us boys and the father and um, the pressure was on to fit in. And um, I have a stammer. It'll come up here or not, uh, probably. And it's um, that mixed in with being English in a Welsh school did lead to some bullying, to a a very different environment. You know, you don't call it racism, but you don't really know what else to call it. You know, it's a different part of Britain, but the hostility is quite strong so that that was um that was the, the early experience of some bullying
0: really I suppose you call it wow so being someone that was going through that type of a traumatic experience um did your parents at the time have any um say so in regards to like what you were telling them did you like bring that back home and say hey dad, this is what's going on or anything like that? Or did you say, hey, um, teacher, this is what's going on? What was the culture like uh, back then for you?
1: Um, Our dad didn't, um, wasn't really open to hearing kind of the negative experiences I was having there. Um, We're a typical three guys in an 80s household. So it's just really not a very sharing place. You get on with things in your own way try to because you don't want your parents interfering when you're at school do you so you you know because you'll get a harder time I mean I don't want to overdo the fact that I was bullied because it wasn't really physical I'm big enough for it not to be unfortunately yeah. for others you' yeah. not you know
0: mm-hmm.
1: but yeah. it was psychological pressure and and a good degree of othering as they put it now dad it wasn't really dad's um he'd already done this very negative act of taking us away from our mum we could only contact her on the phone. And I Mm -hmm. wasn't really speaking on the phone then because the stammer was powerful. Um, So I used to ignore my parents basically at that age. I can't remember (laughs) how the the communication was.
0: So being someone that um, was dealing with a stammering um, issue, what was that like for you as a kid? Knowing that like, I know that kids are mean, right? And I've seen it when I was in school too as well. And I, I say that, because uh when i came from jamaica and i came to america i didn't speak english well so i spoke patois so mm-hmm. i got into a lot of fights and i struggled with um the culture shift. as in i would i did not know some of the slangs that they use in america i was not familiar with some of the name brand things that people did so um I got picked on because of the language barrier that I had got picked on because of the clothes that I was wearing. I was not wearing the Nikes, the Reeboks or any of those types of things and stuff like that. So what was that for you being someone that was stammering and having um, this type of uh, issue with your speech?
1: Yeah. Um, I used to keep to myself uh, as b- best I could when it comes to, um, to kind of the public speaking at school. Um not that you really have to, you know. Back then, as a teenager, you're not really out there presenting all the time. Not that kind of character. But mm-hmm. if um, if y- your term was coming in an English lesson, uh, you got to read a paragraph or something, kind of or, uh, kind of out of a book, you know. Right. Um, so it would be coming along, and I love English, so um, it was a real, it's a shame, embarrassment kind of thing where that just didn't work properly, and I would block on certain words, and eventually this kind of eventually the teacher would ask would would start to skip me so it's a mixture of thank goodness for that and shame um that I wasn't picked on by other other kids because of that and when you got onto the rugby pitch which is huge in south wales um I became very fast on the left wing which you know is like um, the the left wing in in american football right. it's the same principle flying down the side you right. know so he used, used to start to do that instead there's no speaking there pass the ball to parker go and score a try and get your popularity that way. Right,
0: right, right. (laughs) So it sounded like you found a way to compensate for um, that issue in regards to, as a kid, you know what I mean? To like um, blend in and still hang around your friends and still have that type of relationship with your friends, which is what it sounded like, which you did.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah.
0: So knowing that um your parents had divorce at a at a young age did that impact you or bother you in any bit or you were too young and you never really gave it any thought or looked back at it
1: um i didn't give it much thought at the time um i actually thought it was quite exciting because i quite like change and it's like oh there's a change going on it's always fun to have a change when you're young Mm -hmm. it's only when when you start to get older i look back on it after a couple of um relationships and I understood that I'm always thinking in the sense of short-termism in terms of relationships, mm-hmm. not with work. I'm very long-term in terms of work and projects. I can do things for years like that, but with relationships, I'd always thinking. So you kind of it's a self-fulfilling prophecy with that, and I guess that was possibly connected back to um, that 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 experience, you know, gotcha. of not having very good examples in in h- how that that works with
0: other people. Understood.
1: I could be wrong, but
0: yeah. So, being someone that uh, that lost their dad, and knowing that that can have an incredibly like challenging impact on you, what was that like for you, knowing that you lost your dad, someone that you grew up with, when it came to like um, coping mechanism and just moreover with like your mental health?
1: Yeah, uh, it's a huge one. Um, he only died at 67 for him. Um, as you, as you said, I was 22. And, um, there's been lots of studies done where if you lose a, lose a parent young, uh, particularly a father as a young man, it's, it has a disastrous effect, which isn't really, um, studied very much. And you don't want to say that too much cause you don't want that to affect other people going through. Right. It. Um, so it had a, you know, I started to drink heavily and, and I left, the first wife um now 20 years ago was it uh, 25 years ago um but at the same time there's a drive to get down to work and to knuckle up to knuckle down and to get those things you wanted to do done so i went back to university after leaving her and uh completed that with a degree of um determination Mm -hmm. which wasn't there before so his death did bring a degree of determination sparked
0: a lot of fire in you
1: Yes, sparks to fire, absolutely. At the same time, with with a with a pint of alcohol in this hand, um, for pretty much 15 years, solidly, I, I was a, a heavy. I wouldn't call myself an alcoholic because we're not as keen to do that in Britain as maybe America. It's you it so cultural here. Um, but I was drinking a lot, and I was dependent at times. So I, I I don't deny that. Wow! Not not anymore. Not anymore.
0: Before before I jump into the next question here that we had um shared and talked, you know, I, I wanted to ask you. What is the culture like there compared to in the United States? Since you just mentioned that, share with our audience, what's some of the cultural things, the cultural differences um, based on where you live compared to where it is uh, in America?
1: Yeah, well, uh, um, we import loads of of American culture and have since my entire life, since the 80s, and we have a a deep love for it because it's heavily done and we share the same language. Um, uh, But... What is always very noticeable is that America does things on a massive scale. And um, we, we enjoy that very much. And our thing is much more small and much more um kind of kind of quality based as opposed to quantity based. Not that I'm saying that the American things are, are not so much in quality, it's just that um scale is is a big deal. The country's bigger, the attitudes are bigger, and the people are more expansive. And we're we're rather jealous of that, I think, um, because we we are quite repressed and quite controlled, but also very polite. And it's, almost, it's a societal necessity to be polite. If you're not, you don't get on in Britain if you're not polite, in uh, all, all corners of it. And those kind of codes, like you were talking about, coming from, from kind of sort of Jamaica um, to England. We have the same thing going from England to Wales, England to different kinds of codes in different parts of the country are. It's a real challenge from town, but you might not understand the next thing. There's, lots oh, so, <laughs>
0: there's one of So, no 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 it's, it's okay that, that was that was that was a good bit that you shared with me i wanted to um touch on what you had mentioned about um mm-hmm. alcoholism and struggling with drinking and i thought it was interesting that you said that that's something that's uh, maybe like taboo or something that you guys don't talk about there so like you know Growing up in Jamaica, that's not a thing like everybody drinks like everybody's drinking like morning, noon, night. There's a bar at every corner Mm -hmm. and it's like a a traditional thing It's and it's no big deal. Uh, In the United Mm -hmm. States, uh, it it is that, you know, so like if you get uh, if you drink too much, you're an alcoholic, you're this, you're that and so on and so forth. And I was and I'm I'm saying that based off what you had shared with uh, me. And I know that when um, I went through my divorce, I had, uh, got a, a DUI and I had to deal with all of the repercussions that came, came with a, a DUI. So being someone that said you struggled with um, drinking, you had a nervous breakdown, how did you find strength with um, overcoming that? These types of difficulties and things when you had, because you, you mentioned also that you lost your driver's license. And I'm thinking for myself, like I had to go through like the court system. I had to go through, AA meetings I had to go through community service I had to um, do a whole bunch of work I had to see um, a probation officer and all these things for like a year just to clear my name fix my, this entire situation that I got myself into so can you talk to a little bit about that
1: yeah sure sure um, that that sounds like a like, like like a more difficult situation than I had um in in the late 90s there. Um, I lost my driving license in, sort of in 1995 for the first time for a year and then again in 1990, 1999 so that was for three years mm-hmm. and I thought after that one right I'm not going to drive for a while uh, I'm, I'm going to drink instead um, but in between that you know, my, 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 my dad died and I left my wife and um, then I, I started to go out to the pub here, as as we say, um, and to basically do the five or six pints of kind of Cronenberger night and tequilas after that. And you get into this pattern. And um, a couple of times we drive home. A couple of times we catch a taxi. And um, you get into this pattern of um, that's the way to be and and to get over that. It's not possibly every single night, um, just as a kind of a here and there. Long story short, on the Halloween of 1998, I kind of woke up next morning, of that morning, and I um, I couldn't stand up properly, and I started to shake and thought, subconsciously, I thought I was having a heart attack like my dad had had kind of a year before, Uh, uh, 22. But I was having a panic attack. I just never had one before, Mm -hmm. so I assumed it was a heart attack. So I went back to bed, and it got worse. And so I was lying in bed and just like... It's a panic attack, and then I had two of these a day for the next six months. Oh my god. Which out of control. And you start that starts to depress you. So I got depressed and it became anxious depression. And so it was a very slow process of not um, doing anything stupid and being calm and going, things will never be worse than this. And whatever happened after that, things haven't got worse than that. You know, it can't be when you're at a very, very low ebb. I don't ever use the um, I thought about killing myself because i don't like the way that's um, kind of used in culture quite a lot so I, i don't go there but it was a very very dark time and very very hard um so i but over 20 15 20 years slowly went went to istanbul to live all kinds of things and you want to get on with life i was still very creative even despite that and um slowly eventually get to a point where alcohol gets involved again but um not to that horrible dark extent of just after grief that was the worst for
0: sure wow so how did you manage to overcome this type of obstacle this challenge this adversity that you were facing at this um this time like uh i could imagine you know like having a nervous breakdown being in a dark space that this is like really like messing with you and you're just really talking about like your personal life. So like, if you could share, how did this, how did this affect you personally, how you got through it? And then also if you can expound on that, how did this affect your, like your business, your career, what you was doing with your life professionally at the time?
1: Uh, yeah. Um, it's uh, a very intense <laughs> situation, especially when you're a, introspective thinker you know i'm an introspective thinker i think very carefully about things i'm a writer and academic and i like that life um but when that combines with with kind of depression or mental illness it can be an internal spiral and you stop trusting yourself uh you stop being able to trust your own thoughts uh-huh. which is obviously a very alarming thing because you do trust yourself and that's how you get through as well by going um this two will pass you right, know. Right. Um, a very very useful thing for anybody going through difficult times and it is going to go you have to be patient um, because that's that's the nature of life it's just when you haven't been there you don't expect it I was kind of fortunate it happened at that age not older because it can I know sink in, into people at, at kind of, sort of later on um, answer to your other part I was at university at the time I'd got in so that was extra stress starting all that I used to keep going to that uni because I wanted to make sure that I didn't let another job go, not not do uni, because, not because I'm in love with university, but I knew that this is an important calling card in life, and if I can get that, then it's a, it's a bedrock to other things. So I did hold on to that, and it's not very difficult at art school, by the way. It's a bunch of paintings, so I don't want to overdo that. I wasn't going to be a doctor or anything like that, but, but I was a trained artist instead, which I'm very proud of.
0: So let's hop into that... Um a little bit here so we mentioned that you are a writer you're an author you're a music artist and also an educator so how did you get into mm-hmm. all of these um walks of life to to where you're at now you have multiple books out and, and so much more so let's talk a little bit about that
1: yeah uh that's my nurture you know it's, it, it's my absolute um joy still and what i love about writing is that the more you do it the better you get and I don't know how much of a cliche that is, but it, it just does apply to in my case. You know, I am um, the editor now of uh, False Allegations Watch. Um, and I, I've had these eight books out um, sw- 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 swimming uphill there from here they go, States of Independence, all this. And um, that's my last one there, uh, Compelling Speech. So, yes, yeah, thank you for putting them up. It, um, they're all slightly different from each other. Um, cultural theory to to. Uh, M U S I C. If I can't say a word, sometimes I spell it music, um, and and a poet as well. I've got got a collection of poetry coming out sort oh, of wow. kind of this year at the end of, this, end of this year with a bit of luck. And um, you know, I'm a, I'm a painter as well, and this is one I'm quite proud of behind me. And I, I, I've got a bunch of these. Um, all these different forms come come from the same root of kind of communication, and I like. Um, because I don't have any issues with dyslexia or things like that. I love the English language as much as I love visual arts and so and also music, but that's much more of a technical thing, like recording studios and all the rest of it mm. and shows. It's a big project, you know, mm. but um, all these different forms, I'm very passionate in and I just love doing that as much as I used to love drinking and so now it's all about that and especially the editing with the false allegations watch is what kind of takes up almost all my time very happily
0: well man congratulations on um just doing all of these things i think that's a a big task um being someone that just only wrote a book and started a business um for you to do so many things um uh, man, congratulations on that man
1: Thanks. thank you very much you just keep going don't you and uh keep doing the next thing and sort of seeing if you can get over kind of over the last
0: bunch of sales or whatever your target is yeah. So, so let's let's talk a little bit about some business stuff here. So, um, you opened up a music <laughs> and art venue, which is quite a quite a big move. And then mm. uh, you wanted to create that to uh, make an impact. You know, so can you talk a little bit about opening up this business? What was that like for you? And then um, how did how did starting this business? How did it go for you? Um, what was it like uh, in regards to just the experience of just creating this business? And just trying to get like customers, trying to market the business, trying to just try to like uh, bring attention to your business.
1: Yeah. Uh, in um, 2014, I, I kind of came back from Istanbul after spending 10 years there. And uh, it was a bumpy landing back in Britain because it's the cultural sort of shift we were talking about earlier. Another cultural change. Mm-hmm. And um, I hadn't really got used to Britain, what it had become. Um so about about a year year sort of kind of later, I thought about things that I wanted to do, what I hadn't done hitting 40, and uh, thought right, I'm going to open a open a, open an arts venue. I, I love arts, and um, arts venues is, is a really interesting idea. And uh, so basically, I kind of went to a town on the English south coast here in Sussex and um, talked to some other people there into arts, and we got a bunch of money together uh forty thousand pounds something like that and um we opened seafish, fish it's called and um i am still very proud of it it only lasted for a year i did all the design like the, the darkness and and sort of the posters and it's a very cool vibe that we had like, a, like a cbgb's from new york done on the english south coast you know mm-hmm. um it's very multicultural very loads of different kind of styles of everything everywhere art here and music there and um it, it was great for a whole year um I was also a person in charge of alcohol there at the licensee um a licensee there were two of us and um that might not have been such a good idea because we did start to drink some of the profits and that was uh a part of its downfall
0: Uh, (laughs) yeah (laughs) which brings us on to so i know that we also spoke about um some things took place around the Me Too movement and you were facing some allegations um, around that. Can you tell us a little bit about that story? Shed some light on this story.
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, it's a formative thing and it can't get around it. You know, it's um, at the time it was 2007, 2016, 17, uh-huh. very important for, for both our countries and for men in general, this mm-hmm. whole um, uh, at Christmas of that year, I was facing some, allegations after a one night stand and I um then had to wait 14 months for trial at which I thought this would be dropped because there's nothing to it you know I was kind of maintaining innocence all the rest of it I had the trial um it's an appeal situation now so I'll come back on your podcast and tell you how it's been after okay. the appeal um you don't but, uh, have to go deep into
0: it you just share whatever you feel like sharing and we can leave the rest sure thing.
1: it's okay um in in uh kind of March 2018 I was sentenced to 8 years um for t- t- so a sexual assaultly kind of related um things which are a bit more complicated here than there right. and um so but well so, so I was sent to prison and and so the four and a half years inside there um to reflect on that venue which I'm still very proud of as I've said but also the difficulties of um being a, a, a single man in charge of a venue Whilst you're in charge of alcohol, you know, you're sort your, your own and giving it to people. We're all a part of the trial, but um, they weren't talked about like that. But now, after all that process, I've become the editor of False Allegations Watch because uh, of how culture's gone, I suppose.
0: Wow. Wow, wow, wow. So, Sean, um, I know that going to prison, nobody asks for that. Nobody wants that. Um, mm. And... Being someone that went to prison, claiming your innocence. So like deep in your heart, deep in your mind, you feel that you should not be there. You're in a place that you don't belong. What was that like for you when it comes to that experience? When it comes to this particular hardship for yourself? And just for like your reputation, you know, because obviously before you went and I assume that you had business partners, you had family, you had friends, you had a lot going on for yourself. What was this like for you?
1: Absolutely, Mike. Um, a part of, of the Me Too thing and a part of any kind of, of the social shaming is to um, destroy all that stuff as best as they can um, mm-hmm. to say this sh- is it, not going to happen in our town again or in our area again. And lots of people scurry away after it's all gone, or as much as they can, they hide from it. Perhaps they're guilty, or perhaps they're not as innocent as they seem. Um, going to prison is is a is a nightmare for a, <laughs> for anybody, of course. But there are some who expect it more than others. Mm-hmm. Uh, is the reality of inside. So, but there's a bunch of people now in English prisons. Uh, a little bit controversial here, but just some stats. You know, fifteen thousand people. Kind of. Mem- who are actually getting, uh, maintaining innocence to some degree or other. So out of 80,000 in, in English prisons. So 15,000 is a hell of a number. And this has all happened over the last 10 years since the type of uh... situation kind of in America has seeped over into England. And it's basically an industrialized offense industry, uh, which is what I report on, what happened to me, and happens to many, many other guys. These just things aren't as serious as they're often painted out to be. And so we're part of a movement to, to change that, I suppose. Um, but you survive it. I'm, I'm alive and still happy and positive and friendly. And it, if it taught me anything, if it helped me to do anything, it's to discipline things like drinking. Not that I was a big drinker before compared to the times I was telling you about, um, but I just don't bother at all anymore because to save money and because you don't want misunderstandings like this to happen
0: every year, do you? So Exactly. So how... Ha- ha- how has like your personal journey influenced you in a way to approach adversity and to like help others that has been through some of the same situations, the scenario that you've been through?
1: Um, so hugely, I think. I mean, um, I, I'm a sympathetic guy at heart and kind and things like that, but the way culture has gone over the last sort of few years, you're almost forced to be kind and sympathetic and all the rest of it. But <laughs> being, um, being a male in his 40s, I prefer to just do as opposed to say. So, you know, I, I help people with the articles I write. And if they're going through an allegation situation, I'll contact them and help them out with that sort of thing. And um, if if one can help another person by just being open and transparent, either about stammering or the justice thing or um, even opening a club, you know, or being in music, I'll help if I can because I'm a helpful kind of person. But You've had to have all these difficulties happen before before you're able to do that, as as you know completely, because this is what the podcast's all are about, aren't they? Trying to communicate stuff in a helpful way without being patronising or um, condescending or anything like that, because you know that's as kind of bad a thing as anything else. So being all sort of, I am now perfect, and you will learn from me. <laughs> I don't, don't want to be that guy. You know, I just want to you know, being creative and helpful, really.
0: So Sean, you know, uh, when I was at my lowest moments and I was going through divorce, um, being arrested, um, drinking, medications, I knew that I had to work on myself before I could do anything else. So, you know, once I got to the point of um, suicide, I started working on personal development, professional development, started doing some things with counseling, accountability partners, mentors, uh, much more uh, educational things in regards to working on myself. What were some things that you started using as some building blocks? to, like, you know, as some stepping stones to like uh, regroup. So you're someone that had a childhood coming up where your parents divorced, you went through a, a divorce yourself, your dad passed away, and you uh, also got locked up. What, what was some stepping stones for you that you said, all right, I need to regroup, restart some things, fix my life and things like that. Mm-hmm. What was that like for you? What were some steps that you did that you could share with our audience?
1: Uh, yeah. It's, um... I suppose when you look back at it, I mean, I'm only top of forty eight now. I'm not not hundred, you know, but it's still like um, it starts to look like like a, like a kind of chaptered life. So you you kind of understand that it has these different points, doesn't it? And um right. the coming back from Istanbul thing was obviously quite um, quite a step, you know, and quite a jolt. And then I, I think even back then, I was still being aspirational, wanting to get things done, and The problem with aspiration, not that it's entirely a bad thing, but you you aren't ever quite done, you're not ever quite um, finished. I mean, I'm still not even because I'd I'd like to write a better selling book and that sort of thing, you know, there are still things to do. It's just, especially after going inside, it's um, the state is kind of going, you need to slow down. (laughs) Even if you're innocent, it's still sort of, and you kind of have to work out something from that and go, how can I possibly use this? And there's a lot of people inside who won't contextualize the world at all that way. They're just destroyed by it or they're expecting it. And you you kind of compare yourself to that in a little bit and kind of go, well, how how can I make this better for them and for me and for my loved ones as well, who are scattered everywhere, all over the place. I don't have a type sort of family. Um, so not sure if I answered exactly what, what you asked there, Mike, but I tried.
0: Um no, that, I'll that's fine. Um, if I could I could be a little bit more more specific. Uh, when you when you came back out of uh, out of prison, what mm. was like one of the first things that you did? Second things that you did? Third things that you did? That said, uh, this is not going to happen again, you know, either because of uh, what this woman said or whatever, you know. And I'm not going to be back here again. What is it that mm. you? you did when you came out that said, um, it's time to change my life. Okay. Yeah.
1: Um, That, that sort of change did happen and it was, but but it was back in 2018 at the start of the sentence at the Mm -hmm. end of the trial where it's like, my goodness, what has happened to justice? Uh, Not that I was very used to it. So Mm -hmm. at that point of a degree of depression in prison, but, but it's not like the depression I was talking about earlier. It wasn't like an internal mental thing. It Mm -hmm. was more of a situational, like, Christ, I've ended up in prison now. What am I going to do about this? Um, and so um, at that point, it's like, I don't like to waste time anyway. So I started to work out to make sure that that didn't go wrong, you know, body shape and things. But then I realized I was torturing myself after six months of that. Um, you know, I'm not an unfit guy. So I, I just started to um, kind of sort of get everything into a disciplined sort of place, box things. That would go forward in a better way. Um, so yeah, I think it was sort of 2018 that I decided this will never happen again. But I didn't sort of think I'm not ever going to drink and I'm not ever going to meet a woman. I I, I, I just thought um, those things don't have to be as important in in my, you know my, in my my sort of life as they have been until now. All that testosterone that a younger man has necessarily has, and importantly, yeah, testosterone is a good thing, not a bad thing. You know, I definitely agree with that. But all those urges as as a younger man do start to become expressed in a different way, don't they? I mean, thank goodness they do. So it, into kind of creativity, into caring, into communication like this, I guess. I didn't expect to go into a podcasting career
0: after it, but this has all opened up since I've been away. So. so I wanted to talk a little bit about the compelling speech. Hmm. If you could tell 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 us a little bit about this book, what should readers take away from this book? Why did you write this book? And uh, how could this story help a listener that's listening to this podcast?
1: Okay, yeah, the um, compelling speech here is um, I actually wrote it kind of in prison in in, in the Dartmoor prison here, and um, started it as like a as a long-term project, I'm like, well, I have the time to do this now, or the time to plan it. So I started to write it by hand there, and then when I came out, I kind of typed it up. Um, it's 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 a it's a memoir version of a of a TED talk that I also gave in um, 2013 in Istanbul called "The St- in in Creativity." Um, it's it's available online somewhere um, under my name, and that book talks about the right and the left left brain thinking uh idea of speech production um and the uh, the creative part of, of speaking comes from the from the right brain as they've proven with with kind of scans and things like that There starts to flash when you're being artistic and the systematic part of speaking comes from the left and uh, there's a theory that these two are differently at war in the mind of a person who stammers, stutters. And the left brain structural will interfere with the creative right one. And and that, that will then become a kind of a battle inside. And it, and that hits the tongue. They're all in very real time. So because I'm not, not in control of my own speech on a bad day, on a good day, I won't even notice it. And so um, I put all of these ideas into the book as a memoir of, of life and how it was like over, over the, the 45 years. Um, also kind of mixed in with some humor, you know, I enjoy a sense of humor and how stammering is seen in society, uh, in um, like like the films called The Fish Called Wonder and Gareth Gates, and you've got some amazing young sort of singers in America and h- how the stammering is seen as, as a, quite a soft disability, um, but it is a disability. So, but it's having an argument in it, in kind of in in the world of disability rights, there are people who say it's a disability, and there are those who says it isn't. That it isn't, and uh, I still I'm not quite sure about that question, and lots of speech therapists aren't either. So, um, it's all those little ideas into quite a thin thin book. It's, it's not very big, but it's a very cute little memoir. It's about hundred pages, and um, it's got five star, five star reviews on Amazon. So that'll that'll do me fine, you know. Um, yeah. So that's my last one.
0: Gotcha, man. Thank you for sharing that. Um, How do you believe that society could uh, be maybe inclusive or just do better when it comes to um, situations like yours with the Me Too movement? You know, because at least to some of these like cultural types of biases and things like that how do you believe that this situation that's going on now could just be much more fair and where people could be treated fair
1: Well, uh, what a great question um there is an issue right now with um the fact that uh certain i i i, I ideological, um forces are at work at the top of the institutions Across the Anglosphere you know, England, America, and Australia, um, where basically there's a campaign against men, and I could soften that, but I don't think I need to. Um, it's all over the media. Are um, sort of the natural kind of urges of heterosexual males are um, being completely uh, worked away on, and it, it's it's a big problem, and um, so. What we would like with false allegations, watching and empowering the innocent is to, to restore some balance to sort of sexual assault law in the UK. And if that affected people in America, all the better. Um, and what's happening over the last 20 years it is an erosion of, of the innocence till proven guilty uh, principle. So now it's guilty until proven innocent. And But they haven't said that, they haven't admitted it. But each time they, they try and push an extra thing through, that's what they're, what, what they're doing and um there are just many many thousands of people put away as i've said if not completely innocent then very very much overblown situations so I, i'm not a men's rights activist not that i have anything against them i'm an equal rights person and um things aren't equal right now so despite you know the stammer and despite my old drinking habits what's happening to men is much more serious than that and i'm i love women by the way i'm far from a sexist i'm very very pro women's rights to equality equality but we're not in an equal situation and um so it's taking very reasonable people like me and starting to radicalize us into sort of saying well we need to do something to help our, our, our the sons and our brothers you know
0: yeah that's what, that's what i was saying you know i think there's things to the, leads to these cultural biases. I think there's lots of things that lead to these different types of movements and things like that. And, you know, sometimes the substance behind it needs deeper research, deeper thought, opposed to jumping to conclusion and everybody jumping on a gravy train sort of thing.
1: Hmm. Absolutely. It's- Go ahead, go uh, ahead. It, it's a business now, it's a huge business, starting with, with the Title IX, going over into the Me Too, and every time there's one of these things supported by the lawyers over, over here, that then is affected by the police forces who are incentivized to up charges and to, if not completely invent, then to, to massively overblow uh, these, these charges, and the demonization of men helps that along the way. Uh, but people are starting to realize that these things are being you know people are being handed out of their jobs for for no reason but for a hand on a knee or being too cheeky or a comment here and there and 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 they're coming for the language so even the progressive types like me are going you're coming for the language now you know uh-huh. so without even getting into the trans debate which i'm sure is another whole area of things we could go into next time if
0: you want <laughs> <laughs> so um <laughs> what role um, does music and art play in your therapy, you know, and your, like, your well-being and um, your wellness and your health? Um, and I say that because for me, that's that's like a comfort for me, like getting on this podcast and talking to people is a comfort or a little bit of therapy for me too as well. You know, so what is it, music and art for you? Um, whenever you are doing it and going through it and experiencing it?
1: Uh, lovely question. It's absolutely core. Um, it has been since I was f- 14. And um, I mean, I think it, um, the one that sticks out the most is kind of it, it takes a nation of millions to hold us back by public enemy. Um, was massive to me in 87, I think. And at the time I was on that, on that kind of old school hip hop thing. Mm-hmm. I also did a drawing of uh, Prince uh, on the cover of his album, uh, Do Love Sexy, where he's naked, basically. So I did <laughs> this this kind of picture of Prince, and I went, hey, Dad, look at that. And and I think the first thing he thought was, right, that, that boy's gay. But then the second thing <laughs> was, was very creative. So, you know, those two things were so important even back then, and it remains so. Uh, and I love, love the music of all different genres and styles. I, you know, I'm not just talking about kind of black artists, because Of this i have a deep love of soul and a disco and stuff like that but also punk rock and uh, classic rock and things like you know it really is art to me and um i'm as happy painting one of these as i am writing a song though i haven't done as much on on the music side since prison because it's it's a massive project that doing an album but doing a picture is a different project it's very just you and and the, the canvas you know so um but answer to your question gets me back to myself instantly and each time i do it like i said with the articles especially it gets a bit better which is incredibly valuable (laughs) as you get older for a thing to get better you know when you're falling apart physically no not really
0: before i get to my next question you just mentioned um writing articles can you talk a little bit about like the articles that you're writing with your company
1: uh sure yeah i um with the empowering the innocent uh project which is brainchild of um dr michael norton who's the the chief miscarriages of justice expert in the uk um he he has been a been a professor at the university of bristol for about 20 25 years and um he um I, i actually contacted him whilst i was in prison then once i came out um he said you should be the editor of this project he's got false allegations watch i said love to and um, because he could see my passion for it and skills in writing. So um, I often report back on whatever story comes to us from Twitter or f- from, from the media sphere, uh, whatever's going on, up to Marilyn Manson, um, uh, you know, Mr. R. Kelly, we've got a case from him up there. He's maintaining in his innocence, of course. And uh, lots lots of cases from America, basically, Mr. Craig Williams, but also loads from Britain, it's not divided on those lines. And I quite enjoy comparing the two systems about how we've imported loads of um, of the legal structures for Me Too and t- 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 Title IX over to Britain. And that's very educational for English people. It makes them feel better about what they're going through as well, particularly the mothers. So um, I write a lot of that stuff about cultural studies of justice reform, but then I also edit the stories of the ones kind of sent into me as well so that's what i do for that organization yeah
0: would you consider yourself someone who is a advocate um based off what you're doing now
1: oh i suppose so um i've been called you know quite important in the false allegations industry um false allegations movement in britain and i suppose i am that i, I don't really look, kind of, sort of like to give myself too many tags you know if a person says I'm a philosopher, you sort of think, "Well, no, you're a dickhead." You know that would be the <laughs> response to someone um, bigging themselves up. <laughs> but if a person says to me, "You're an advocate," for this, I, go, okay. <laughs> I don't mind. It depends on what people want to call me. What I'm, <laughs> I'm a writer for sure. I can't. I can't deny that. I'm very happy I with
0: you. Me. So. I wanted to touch on being someone that been through a good bit of things and have overcame those things and now thriving. What, what is it that you think that you, are your next steps or your, some of your next accomplishments or next goals in life that you're trying to achieve or trying to reach right now in regards to the career path that you're on?
1: Nice. Um, yeah, I have quite a, quite a lot of stuff that I did inside, which um, so basically a whole the bulk of work of books and plays and poems and all kinds of things, some paintings, which are basically stored up, and I'm attempting to edit them through being an editor as well, so I can self-edit and to get them in into into a state that 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 the public would would kind of find interesting. So I'm doing a lot of editing of our work to just to ensure that that's not lost but also to go is it are the public going to be interested in that so getting that out kind of gradually um at the same time helping dr Michael get uh, empowering the innocent to be bigger more understood and respected and I mean we've got a mountain to climb here like I've already alluded to the fact that innocence still proven guilty has been erased by ideology in Britain not much better in the u.s. So we feel like I've got a big challenge with trying to hold justice back up um, because it's, it's achieving a lot by shame and that's not the way for humanity to go achieving things by shame. So we want to achieve things by honesty and to say, you know what, you know, if this happened to your son, how would you feel if, um, if, if you were lied about without having any kind of speech or being able to express yourself, how would you feel? That kind of thing. we um, don't want to, to label that too much for you. But that's another part of what I want to do is to um, bring some transparency to the justice system whilst kind of publishing my own work, I guess is my
0: my aim. I man, I, I commend you, man. And I think that's some brave work uh, to, do, to do something like that. I think um, for you to spotlight an area where you believe that uh, there is an actual cause, um, I think that's um, pretty phenomenal. So I salute you for doing mm-hmm. that, man thank you thank you so much i also wanted just to share with you so as a kid one of my gifts or talents was um art so i used to paint i used to draw i used to do uh comic books and i found that um it brought so much uh so much out of me that like i, I never knew you know what I'm saying as a, i think i'm a, a deep thinker when it comes to uh, expressing myself, and I found that I was able to do that through my art. I'm not a musician like you or anything like that, but um, I could do it through through uh, the uh, artwork. Mm-hmm. When it comes to expressing yourself with art, do you plan on doing much more of that and expressing yourself more with some of uh, the things that's going that has happened to you that has that's, that you've been dealing with or some of like your causes? And things like that. As I as I think of art, I just know that you could express so much of either some things from your childhood, some things from like a relationship, some things from prison, something that took place with, um, with uh, the uh, reform, you know what I mean? So do you have any thoughts or any initiatives around that where you're going to say, I'm going to take all of these things that I've experienced in my life or I, that I know that men are going through or people are going through it in general or just some of these cultural differences and things like that. I so said, I'm going to put this on a canvas.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a really good question, and um, that's exactly what uh, the Dr. Norton again is very passionate about art and um, kind of anyway, and c- kind of creativity in general. As as am I, and uh, we've got a plan to basically um, do um, innocence art, innocence art, um, where um, there are certain things that i've um kind of created uh which are basically portraits of people who are kind of for maintaining innocence or have been through the justice system uh there's a portrait just up there i was about to grab it but then i realized i don't know his the person that i did i just finished it yesterday i'm not entirely sure that he wants to be um referenced so i'm going to leave it there for now okay okay uh, okay but, <laughs> uh, um, I. If a person's case really moves me, um there's, um, there's a chap called Mr. Andy Malkinson, and this case is out in the media, and he's open. He's just been awarded an appeal um, after 18 years inside for a rape um, committed in 2003, and the DNA they've just discovered in the last couple of years wasn't his. So after spending 18 years and saying, I didn't do this, the appeal court have said, doesn't look like you did do this so he's been been kind of awarded the appeal to go ahead and it looks like eventually he's going to have he's going to be exonerated we're all praying for him and about six six weeks ago i did this kind of portrait of him which i'll get out and i'll email to you um
0: which, yeah, which share, is, uh, wait, I'm wait, right. i'll, I'll uh, post it uh i'll post it on the podcast or i'll post it whenever we uh release your episode of the podcast it'll be a part of the story too that um we put out there as well
1: lovely lovely i'll get that out for you it's going to be a part of innocence art because it's a goodie it works and it i kind of do these um portraits but also things like um stuff that's just a bit more <laughs> uh abstract you know it's, they're yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. Abstract, abstracted arrangements of um what's going on in uh the central school of speech and drama 1969 this one mm-hmm. uh, Oh. So it's a, yeah.
0: No, that so one is lovely.
1: No thank you. It doesn't have very much to do with justice reform, though. So it's a, it's a bit more of a historical piece, uh, coming back back to my dad's time. So yes, yeah, so I I hopefully this kind of it, um, the Innocence Art Project is going to be up and running by the end of the year. Though Dr. Michael is still working on it with, with
0: ideas for it. Man, I just had an idea that just flashed through my head of what I what I would probably do or add to a project like that. Just just like all of my creative uh, juices just sparked from from uh, what you just said. And <laughs> but I wanted to ask you. There's so many people that are in jail or locked up for like s- stupid stupid crimes or things that people are considered. That were crimes probably 20 years ago that today are not even considered crimes and still are facing time for some of those situations. And the story you just shared there is a football player here in America. He played uh, college football, and the girl said that he raped her. And then it showed that um, he did not rape her. She lied on him, and he was in jail for over three or four years, but he could not go to he could not play in the NFL. He could not make any money. He could not do anything. And I wanted to ask you, what are like the retributions or anything like that, that uh, in um, your country compared to in the United States? And I say that because sometimes there may be some monetary um, benefits for someone that has faced some time that the country will say, Hey, you spent 20 years in prison. Here's 20 years of, of money that you missed. What is it like uh in your country (laughs)
1: um it's very difficult to get an appeal uh here um you have to have 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 the new evidence or have to prove that a thing went wrong at trial um and for sort of sex offenses you don't need evidence to put someone away in the first place anymore they've removed this and that's going to get worse this year which is the thing we're working on Um, if you can prove beyond a reasonable doubt of appeal, on appeal, that you definitely weren't that person and it definitely wasn't rape, then you might get compensated. But um, Mr. Malkinson, I think, will because it wasn't him. But mu- a lot of the time, especially with with the footballers and people you are talking about, sex did happen, but it was mixed consent. You know, she says it didn't or she didn't know who's a footballer at the time and was super rich and then he dumped her. Um, that kind of thing is happening more and more here with our footballers as well, our soccer players, you know, wow. and they're targeted left, right and center. And a lot of the time they happen to be black. Not that I'm going to go on about that point, but it's it's a thing we've all noticed, though there are white people, too. It's really about the amount of money you've got a lot of the time. Um, there are false accusers out there. That's not everybody. That's not the whole of the story, but it's a lot more than lots of our media want to talk about. And so, um, yeah, it's very, it's very difficult to get compensated. But if you can prove it definitely didn't happen, then you might. Then perhaps I will. I don't know. We'll, we'll see in the end. But um, I'll, I'll keep you posted on that.
0: I guess we'll see, man. So, got a couple more questions before we hop out of here, um, Sean. So, did you ever face any sort of like resentment based off some of the situations and circumstances that you were in? And then from those resentments, if you did, did you have to go through a level of uh, forgiveness so you could move past whatever situation that, that you were in to get past a hurdle or a mental block to get to the next level in life where you're at? Uh, um,
1: as the first allegations were being made uh, back in 2016, um, there was a social media pylon on me. Oh,
0: from, wow. Okay.
1: Yeah from the um complainant's boyfriend um one of them mm-hmm. and so that happened on social media which is very very strange the first time you know of that kind of thing happening attacking me and attacking the venue like putting us as, as, the, as the same organism and that was very painful i had to leave town uh, i just felt really uncomfortable because i'm not used to being attacked and i didn't know why i was being attacked it's just this guy was very pissed off with me um so there was that to deal with and then after the after the um, uh, the actual conviction itself, I go away. Um, lots of people kind of abandoned me. Um, the TED talk was taken down by TED. Um, the BBC uh, I ha- had a play of, of kind of, of one of my songs. BBC they took that down. And um, after I got out, uh, I was going to 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 be be a writer for for a magazine, and they put my put my first article up then they checked my bio went to um do some more deeper digs on it i would have told them about everything but they went they just just took it down kind of immediately and without even asking a word and blocked me on twitter and everything and i'm like how childish is this like being canceled off the cuff like that so wow. it,
0: that's it, that cancel culture
1: it was, was cancel culture in action um which is my current subject in writing. I'm collecting all this stuff of, of myself and others. Uh, p- people are cancelled for like the footballers we were talking about. Disastrous for them because it's a purely professional, and money thing. When it's a creative, they're, they're you know you people will buy a book because they like you. You know it's not really about footballing and not scoring goals. Right it's about they, how you present things. And the only way to counter this is to be yourself, which is what I've noticed anyway. Wow. Not that I'm that big a profile, but you know, it's just kind of mm-hmm. relative.
0: So, how is it these days that you stay positive, you stay motivated despite all of these adversities that you face?
1: Uh, stuff like this, man. Um, you know, you, you are. <laughs> I, I suppose I, I did have a kind of a redemption thing inside, which, it, but it's a bit unconscious. I, I, I can't really pin it down early mm-hmm. on. Of going, I'm going to focus afterwards, and to do all the creative sort of things so i i'm a naturally positive person anyway which doesn't really help for the context of our kind of podcast here but i just happen to be intrinsically positive which is helpful um but if people who aren't feeling like that um feel uh have been falsely accused or feel a bit sensitive or like oh, i couldn't do what he does uh, just think about what you do well and you, you know that that part of yourself is untouchable you know and and that that you, you can do that. You can score a goal. You can cook that meal or you can paint that picture. That's yours. And um, people can't take that away from you if they're going to take other things. And I think that's probably what helped me.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. So Sean, as we get ready to wrap up and um, get out of here, man, um, I've listened to your story. It's an absolutely amazing story of someone that overcame some insurmountable adversities and challenges and for you to come on here and be so open, transparent, um, lots of people would not talk about some of the things you spoke about, some of the things that some men may have dealt with. Probably would not talk about some of these things, too. So, man, I applaud you for coming on here. I applaud you for being transparent and being totally authentic. What, what are some advices or some lessons that you could leave with our audience based off some of the things that you've uh, been through yourself?
1: Uh, I guess, as I've kind of alluded to, is I mean, it sounds obvious to just say be honest with yourself and be open, um, but it's not. It's not a very easy thing to do. And in, in in a lot of our jobs, we're not allowed to. Like, if you're a politician, you're not allowed to be open. You can't tell the truth on every subject. Um, and um, we are being brought to the point where you are not allowed to say what you think a person's sex is, even if when you know. So these things are very difficult to actually do with complete integrity, Uh, just to give you a hint on my stance on the the trans uh, issue. But um, it's like people should be able to to speak their own truth. And what we're doing now, you know, at the start of this, you gave me a a fascinating short insight into your story, and you've heard mine over this hour. And it's like um, the way to feel better, the way to uh, explore yourself as a man, as a person, as a woman, is to, is to just be open. Yes, be vulnerable, but that that term, it is, isn't even applicable if there's no threat. And what what are you and I going to do? We know we're, we're no threat to each other. We're just um, living in the same world and enjoying each other's experiences. Maybe it helps to be a little bit older, um, but I, I uh, yeah, just to live in your own truth, I suppose. I, I hate these cliches. I can't do cliches, man. So if I, if I
0: work for you then works for me. I got you, man. So Sean, um if anybody wanted to uh work with you, book you on a podcast, order one of your books, get you to speak at a conference, or just ask you a couple of questions about um anything. How can mm-hmm. they get a hold of you? How could they contact you? How could they reach you or anything?
1: Cool. I think the best way would be to um, contact me on, on the Twitter, which is Twitter at Chishon B.W. Parker. That's the place I'm I'm probably the most active these days. Um, if they'd like to talk about justice reform things to give us our story, we'd be probably happy to report on it. If it's, you know, if, if it's uh, kosher, there'd be uh, empowerinnocent at, at gmail.com, empowerinnocent at gmail.com that comes through to, to, to both Mr. Dr. Michael and me. And we'll have a look at that and that can really help people too. So those two places. And if, if they want to want to buy the books, look up the Sean B.W. Parker on Amazon and they're all there in front of you lined up.
0: Well, Sean, it's been an absolute pleasure to record this podcast with you, man. Um, this conversation uh, was thoroughly uh, inspirational, empowering and you left it definitely left an impact on me. Hopefully mm-hmm. there for our audience, man. So thank you so much for stopping by and sharing your story.
1: Oh, you're welcome. Thank you so much, Mike. Lovely to be here.
0: You're welcome, man. Until mm-hmm. next time, guys, we drop episodes weekly. Peace and we love you. <laughs> Can't complain at all. Couple dollars in my pocket. No and go. Been working on my body. Getting healthier. Thank God
1: for clarity.